Freedom of speech. Fundamental rights. Freedom of uh, conscience. Academic freedom. Freedom of press. And the right to listen. You're listening to So To Speak, the free speech podcast brought to you by FIRE, the foundation for individual rights in education. Welcome back to So To Speak, the free speech podcast, where every other week we take an uncensored look at the world of free expression through personal stories and candid conversations. I am, as always, your host, Nico Perino. And today I'm joined by Chris Ferguson. He is a professor of psychology at Stetson University in Florida. His research and clinical work explore many issues, including crime, violence, and antisocial behavior. He's written and researched on the impact of media on viewers, including violent video games. We actually interviewed his co-author of Moral Combat, uh, Patrick Markey, over at uh, Villanova, I believe, right, Chris? Mm -hmm. Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, yeah. That was a, it seems like forever ago because it was pre-COVID that I interviewed him, but it was really only like the end of 2019. <laughs> but uh, that was an interesting conversation. I encourage our listeners to go back and check that out. Uh, but you've also done research on sex in the media and suicide-themed media, and you've authored a number of books, including the aforementioned Moral Combat. But the most recent one is How Madness Shaped History an eccentric array of maniacal rulers, raving narcissists, and psychotic visionaries. And I apologize. I messed up your cover here a little bit because I read it by the pool yesterday. (laughs) And it started to fray. But it was a a fascinating read, Chris, because I'm a history major. And you usually don't get this sort of perspective on Mm -hmm. history. I mean, it was a good history book on its own. But you also take a look at the psychology of these people who create a lot of the history that, um, you know, who wrote a lot of our history, what was the impetus for looking at that? Yeah. And I was going to say, by the way, you have to buy a whole new book now that you got water on the cover. So yeah. Yeah, that's, that's, that's you gave rule. me this one for free. I, 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 don't, I don't make them up, you know, that's just, <laughs> <laughs> that's just how it, how it goes. But, uh, yeah, I mean, so, I mean, I love history It's, it's part of the impetus is I, I just wanted to write a book that was fun for me and that I thought would be fun for other people to read as well. But, but a lot of it came from, you know, I had read, you know, sort of like the it was a, a Jared uh, Diamond's like Guns, Germs and Steel and, and, and a lot of other books are kind of in that same vein. Uh, the the uh, Zeep guy seemed to be over the last few years or maybe a decade or more uh, was this sort of idea that sort of like the main drivers of history were these kind of like environmental forces, you know, mm-hmm. so that if the West became prominent beginning during the enlightenment age that was a was an accident of of geography you know that the correct you know combination of geographical resources and absence or presence of plagues and and things like that and where war kind of came in and where it didn't um that that just happened to be a lucky combination that allowed you know sort of european communities to rise and become dominant in the enlightenment era and there was a de-emphasis on the sort of the more traditional sort of like great person hypothesis. I was going to say, yeah. yeah. <laughs> the, the idea that, you know, like without George Washington, that the American Revolution would have failed, you know. So the the sort of guns, germs and steel argument would be that like George Washington is largely superfluous uh, to, you know, some other dude would have stepped in and, and kind of like filled the same role or, you know, a group of dudes or dudettes or whatever uh, would have stepped in and, and, and did the same thing. And, 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 and I think there's something to that. I mean, I really wasn't you know, writing a book to sort of oppose that. I think there are a lot of credible aspects to that, um, that viewpoint. But I, but I, but I think, think it's my myopic a little bit. And you point out yeah. the case of Winston Churchill, of course. I'm fairly confident that uh, Britain wouldn't have won that war and would have coalesced. Uh, 
uh, or fallen into place if it weren't for him. I mean, all the forces save one, Winston Churchill, were were arguing for uh, for diplomacy and some sort of compromise with Hitler. Yeah, absolutely. You know, had Neville Chamberlain remained, you know, uh, prime minister um, following uh, the invasion of Poland, or I think who else was it Attlee that they were looking at at one point? You know, so or Halifax. Of, yeah. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Exactly. That you know, it would would the outcome have been the same? Because there was kind of some vibe of you know, once particularly France fell during World War II, that you know, this is kind of looking hope, looking bad. It's looking hopeless, um, and uh, so they benefited from certainly i mean of course we could always do counterfactual and what would history have looked like had you know winston churchill not existed but uh they certainly benefited from an individual who was able to steal them up and and give them morale and give them the you know the uh, grit for lack of a better word to persevere through some of the darkest moments of you know the battle of britain in uh, you know in world war ii um so yeah i mean there there is this element of either for good or for evil that individuals do matter and of course we make that or at least those of us that are sort of on the left are making that argument right now about like COVID-19 you know and of course we don't know counterfactually what the pandemic would have looked like in the United States in 2020 had Hillary Clinton president you know for instance Mm -hmm. but there is this sort of suspicion that it would have looked somewhat different it wouldn't have been great I think everybody would say that there still would have been pandemic and it would have been bad but you know are there a certain percentage of lives that would have been saved had we had someone different in a leadership role you know I don't I don't know but that but that is sort of speaking to this idea that individuals do matter and the actions of people who are in charge of our societies can have an influence on how things turn out for us either for good or for bad it just was more fun for me to write about the bad ones yeah. Uh, well, it's hard to imagine that <laughs> that, that whether you had Mao or not, you would get the great leap forward, right? It, yeah, just, yeah. it just doesn't it doesn't see that the whole argument. And I'm sure, like everything, you know, nature versus nurture, the environment versus the great man theory, you, it's it's all a factor. But again, without Mao Zedong, I don't know that you get the 20th century China uh, that you saw. Or without Hitler, I'm not sure you get the Germany that you saw or without Steve jobs, I'm not sure you get the iPhone. Um, so, you know, I, that sort of argument to me is, um, I have to take it with a grain of salt. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Yeah. It it, it is trying. I mean, my, my hope was kind of to try to bring things back a little bit towards, you know, like you're saying, like, it's not, it's not that the guns, germs and steel argument is, is wrong. It isn't, you know, it's, it's just that it's one piece of the puzzle. And that individuals can matter uh, as well. And, and on occasion, individuals can have outsized dramatic impact on how their societies function or or don't function, uh, depending upon how they themselves are functioning in some situations. Yeah. You, so you take a look at a lot of the maniacal uh, and maniacal and narcissistic rulers in your book. And you taught you, you have this quote, you say human societies have evolved, developed codified laws, accepted that Kings and Queens are not above them and developed bureaucratic checks and balances to prevent power from being centralized on any one mad personality. So I want to, I want to ask because it's those sort of checks and balances that have prevented these maniacal rulers from censoring or killing on a whim. Um, is do those moments come in a unique moment of sanity for society? Like the idea that we put in these checks and balances, uh, do they have to come at a unique moment? Is the state of nature, the Hobbesian one where we're all, uh, uh, kind of fighting amongst 
many with each other. Uh, I, I guess, is it unique? Is it to be expected that we get these codified laws or is the madman or mad woman the, the, the yeah. state of nature? Yeah, I, I mean, again, uh, at the risk of oversimplifying, so uh, you know, somewhat the sort of default, if you will, is probably the mad person, <laughs> you know. Yeah. Way of, yeah. So you know, historic historically, you know, power has largely been centralized, at least during sort of developed, you know, uh, post agricultural revolution uh, societies. So this idea that, and and you know, we could say certainly even modern democracies have power differentials. You know, it, it, it's not we're not living in Whoville, you know, uh, mm-hmm. at this point in time, you know, so, uh, I don't want to necessarily suggest, you know, there's this, you know, uh, utopia that we're now living in. Um, but, but there is a sort of tendency for people who drift into powerful positions for one reason or another, uh, to try to accumulate power, you know? And so this idea that power should be spread out, um, is is really weird in history <laughs> it's, it's you know uh why the american revolution was so unique right yeah it was it ab- absolutely was you know and, and of course the, the american revolution itself capitalized on you know sort of you know, like political and humanitarian humanitarian uh uh humanitarian god i can't speak today uh thought that had been evolving you know for you know really decades or even, even a century or two beforehand you know the humanist movement that it, had evolved out of the enlightenment so it, it, it's not like you know the founders just like off the top of their heads thought of this stuff they were were you know um influenced by other philosophers and stuff but but there did seem to be that confluence of that sort of philosophy of thought was was existent it, you know was, was coming to some prominence and you had a group of leaders who were at least willing to consider it, you know, and again, I, I don't necessarily want to cast the founders as complete, you know, um, uh, what would the word for it be? Uh, you know, I mean, there's, there's still angels. Still, yeah, yeah, exactly. I mean, they still had, you know, this idea, at least some of them, like John Adams, of course, were worried about the public and the, the common person and, and, you know, with, with possibly some good reason. Um, so well, they the weren't public, right. Weren't they to a certain extent, they would have given Washington the mm-hmm. kingship if he wanted yeah. it. <laughs> yeah. And why yeah, not? Yeah. Right. He seemed like a good guy and that's all humanity had known throughout history. Right. Was these sort of autocratic rulers and you just hoped you got a benevolent, benevolent one. Right. Yeah, exactly. And he had to kind of demonstrate himself as being the sort of, uh, you know, benevolent ruler. So there was this kind of movement to, you know, uh, enthrone kind of a president for life, you know, essentially, um, you know, in, in, in the, the early Republic. And it was, fortunate that he basically played this role of Cincinnatus, you know, from mm-hmm. the Roman Republic of basically turning down power uh, when it was uh, offered to him. So that was a very fortunate. So there again, you have an individual had that in, that had watched and made a different choice and decided to, you know, go for some sort of president for life, uh, which if I remember was something that was on the table as an idea for a while there. Uh, if he had gone for that or pushed for that, then that might be what we were faced with still today he would have set that precedent um for for that and even though even though we didn't get that i mean you still get some of the imagery that might suggest that he were a godlike or king-like figure you go into the capitol dome and you see the apotheosis of washington he's sitting on a chair in the heavens lording over (laughs) (laughs) all us little people looking up at him uh (laughs) it's hard to 
think that you would do that for one of your presidents today, like put Donald Trump up in the Capitol yeah. Dome or or Joe Biden up in Joe the Biden, Capitol. Yeah. yeah, it's 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 just even silly to entertain that. But they did that. They did we're, that. We're just kind of glad he can tie his own shoes at this point. But uh, you know. <laughs> yeah, yeah, you're glad. Of, yeah, the I'll be mean to the job. Time, you know? <laughs> the. But is the, it, even some of these people who were informed by the Enlightenment had that urge to censor. I mean, we look at John Adams and yeah. the, the mm-hmm. Sedition Act, and yeah. and although Thomas Jefferson uh, freed those people who were imprisoned under the Sedition Act uh, when he became president, he was he was prone to censorship as well. Is have you ever thought about the psychology of censorship? Is the default state of nature to shut up our critics, to shut up our enemies? Yes. <laughs> and, and and what type of person does it take to overcome that? Self-aware. I mean, it's it's so most people. I mean, although I mean, I, I'm seeing more people now who will kind of come right out and say that they're not free speech advocates. So I've, I've heard, you know, sometimes I, you know, I've had that conversation where I say, well, if you really believe in free speech, and I say, well, no, I don't believe in free speech. Oh, okay. Well, at least we've established that. <laughs> yeah. All right. Fair enough. Fair enough. Okay. Yeah. Uh, we are in agreement then that you are not arguing in favor of free speech. So there seems which is to- always a weird argument because then it's uh, what are you in favor of? Might makes right. Whoever holds the lovers of power yeah. determines what is free and what is not. But right. Usually, yeah. usually get more a more nuanced argument than that. They'll say, uh, you know, I'm. But anyway, yeah, I'm, I'm in favor of free speech, but is usually yes, argument, yeah. you'll get, you'll get, a, uh, go, get what many free speech advocates call the buttheads, you know? Uh, the- yeah. <laughs> <laughs> well, I mean, I, I guess that that is that kind of argument that comes out of, I know, like the big, the big fight now is over like CRT and, and, you know, like even like Delgado kind of had that, that, that sense of, of, uh, free speech as being sort of a aspect of oppressive, um, you know, the, it benefits the oppressors in society and, and that sort of stuff. So I think probably people are kind of, coming from some version of that view of you know uh unfettered speech benefits the powerful kind of a uh viewpoint which which is is kind of the opposite of true but that that but i understand why sometimes people think that yeah and um (laughs) yeah there's i mean there's a whole slew of of theorists including um the author of repressive tolerance why is his name i've mentioned his name a million times on this podcast um who argue that you sort of need to censor in order to create a tolerance within society, like, and that full tolerance is repressive, like tolerating differing points of view, if they result in differential treatment or perhaps differential treatment, um, can be repressive. Yeah. But I, but I think, I think, you know, there is this kind of innate, um, Marcuse, that's who I, that's it. Okay. Yeah. Yeah, I, I think there is this kind of innate tendency for us. To, you know, again, it comes down. I mean, there is something to this idea of power. You know, so and of course, information and speech and communication is all about power. So there is this sense of when we're in some sort of debate that yeah, we kind of want to shut the other side up. You know, and um, and it can be frustrating. You know, to to come across people, and I, I've felt it. You know, so I understand it. You know, so that's why I sort of say like. You know, and I try to resist pat myself on the back and that kind mm-hmm. of stuff. But, you know, it does take a certain sense of like, ooh, I'm getting frustrated by this other person's argument, but they have the right to make it, you know. And if I want to convince them or others that my argument is right, I need to come up with some information or fact or data 
and but while at the same time supporting this other person's ability to have a platform to have an opportunity to speak. Um, and that can be very difficult, you know, I think for a lot of people. And like I said, I mean, I have felt the inclination at times where it's like, oh, wow, that that are well, just easier dangerous, you know? <laughs> yeah. I mean, it's just easier, right? Because you don't yeah. have to do the work. And if you have all the weapons behind you, you're one of these eccentric or maniacal rulers that you write about <laughs> in your book. Uh, yeah. It's fairly easy to do. But there's a question as to whether it's effective. You know, mm. is it is it actually effective affecting the the sort of result that you want to shut people yeah. up? Uh, do the ideas disappear? Um, I think it's hard to kind of know exactly how effective that is because if the censorship works and the ideas do disappear, we probably wouldn't know about them, right? Right. Right. Yeah. Um, it probably this sort of censorship would probably need to be all encompassing in order to not let let them leak out. I think you probably get some of that in North Korea, maybe mm-hmm. a little bit during uh, the rule of uh, Mao Zedong. But uh, tactically, I mean, at least in modern times, it ends up making martyrs out of those you're trying to censor. And and of course, if your your goal is truth, truth discovery, then you lose a lot by shutting people up. Right, yeah. Well, there again, I think for a lot of people, the the goal isn't truth discovery. <laughs> you know, I, th- I think that you know, there, there's you know, we construct worldviews, right? You know, we have mm-hmm. these sort of narratives about how the world works, whether they're religious or political, um, or or anything else. And uh, our, our you know, our inclination is to be hostile towards anything. You know, in psychology, we have the idea of of confirmation bias or my side bias, which are kind of related ideas. And so we, the gist of it is that when we have, you know, a piece of information that um, supports our worldview, we tend to soft pedal it, you know, we tend to not question it uh, Mm -hmm. for the most part. And when we come across a piece of information that conflicts with our worldview, um, we usually aren't very curious about it. You know, uh, yeah, the, the ideal of course is to be curious is to say, well, I used to think this thing was true. Um, but, um, but I'm sort of curious to find out if it's not. And particularly if it's something we're emotionally invested in, there is this also this element of like emotional and moral investment in things that Mm -hmm. makes things harder If we're emotionally and morally invested in a particular worldview, or we have our reputation, like it's the Ferguson theory of everything. And then a piece of data comes by, you know, and, and says that, that, you know, if I've got a book that says something is true and somebody else comes out with information that says my book is wrong, well, I still want people to buy my book. So I can't like just like back down and say, oh, I mean, the ideal is that I would, right? You know, the ideal is I say, hey, yeah, I thought this was true. People should stop buying my book. And I think there's one or two examples of authors who have actually done that, but uh, they are very, very rare. The, the, the human inclination is actually to sort of dig in one's feet. And um, say, like, there must be something wrong uh, with the, the, the source. I just had a, a, a little Facebook debate today. It wasn't acrimonious or anything, but it was over the, the protests in Cuba. Mm-hmm. And this one person was saying that this was all like a CIA plot to, like, instigate these protests. And some, somehow it was going to, like, result in, like, the U.S. was going to invade Venezuela. I don't know how they got from Cuba to Venezuela, but nonetheless, mm-hmm. probably uh, by boat and then by land. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I'm not sure how that. But but I, I kind of yeah, I don't know. I honestly don't know anything about the politics of Cuba, or you know, more than the average person, I, I suppose. But you know, I sort of went and looked at like I found a survey. It was done, I think, by the University of Chicago, and they actually managed to survey Cubans, and the data was 
you know, uh, said like 54% of Cubans would move out of Cuba if they had the opportunity to do so. And most of them would move to the U.S. Um, and I said, well, what, what do you think about this? And the reply was like, well, that comes from the University of Chicago, which is like this imperialist, uh, mm. you know, <laughs> uh, CIA funded. I mean, I'm exaggerating a little bit, but they did. No, say I know. I, I get yeah. the gist of what they're probably <laughs> trying to get at. Yeah. And I could probably imagine how that conversation went from there. Yeah. <laughs> but the, the, this idea of confirmation bias and it's a very, I'm assuming very recognized concept within the field of psychology. Does the field of psychology do a good job of moderating that within itself? Like, no, <laughs> Because I, I think about Jonathan Haidt, right? And, um, yeah. Mm-hmm. You know, social uh, social psychology and the sort of work that he does. And I remember he told this story. He went to some sort of conference and he asked people to raise their hands if they were conservative. You know, pretty much anything other than liberal and no one raised their hands. You know, that doesn't mean that they don't exist. It might just mean that they're fearful to raise their hands in an environment where everyone is elsewhere. But if if you you'd think in a in a field like psychology which is your field you would understand these innate biases and then would create like some sorts of in, institutional disconfirmation to fight against them uh but it sounds like the uh the the it is very strong within yeah. psychology <laughs> very it's a very <laughs> id driven field yeah well, it's absolutely true that you know i mean so i'm i'm on i'm on the left i'm i'm a pretty liberal person you know i've voted for Biden and, and uh, Obama. And I don't think I've ever voted for a Republican for any major office. Um, but, but, you know, most people in academia and certainly including psychology, it now feels like they're to the left of me. You know, mm-hmm. I, I, I'm probably, uh, you know, the closest, you know, as a sort of Clinton. Well, you're Obama, a neoliberal. There, I'm Chris. voting. Yeah. <laughs> I'm, I'm the conservative now on campus. Um, you know, so, but no, I mean, and it comes right from the top and we, we have an organization, the American Psychological Association that, that I was on the, on the uh, council of representatives for three years. So I got to see how some of it functions on the inside and it's, um, it's not a science organization. I mean, you know, so people, mis- you know, mistake, it's a guild, you know, which is mm-hmm. fine, you know, because yeah, there's room for that. Yeah, we, people like myself, we pay money every year. You know, uh, I'm a member, um, mm-hmm. and uh, you know, it's supposed to represent our profession. You know, um, but it's not a science organization. So, so watching like these things. So, first off, you know, as counselors, we tip, as council members, we were typically asked to vote on things. We had no idea what you know. We had no personal information about whether this thing was true or not. Uh, but a lot of them were politically loaded, you know, sorts of issues. So it tends to function. I mean, first off, it's a marketing firm for psychology is what it is. But it also tends to function because most of the members are pretty far on the left, certainly much further on the left than the average person in, in the general public. Um, it tends to function as kind of a quasi you know, progressive organization, you know, um, which, again, isn't necessarily a bad thing, uh, except that it's supposed to be science. Right. You know, um, and if it is only taking you know, left or far left views uh, on issues and does so quite often, I used to make the joke that. You know, President Trump couldn't fart without the APA releasing a statement opposing it. Um, and, you know, so if it's that kind of. And has the OP- APA always been like, because you, you saw the, poli- you've seen, especially in the last four years, five years, the politicization of a lot of these apolitical organizations issuing statements on things that you 10 years ago would have never issued a statement on because it was outside the mission. Is that, I mean, I imagine you've been a member or at least a, watched it long. Yeah. for a long time. <laughs> I, is it. Have you seen that trend towards politicization in, in recent memory? And this maybe gets into a little bit of the polarization discussion that you have yeah. in your book, too. 
It's got, it's gotten more so. I would say. I, I think it's always been somewhat of an issue for the API, at least going back several decades. I would say. You know. So I mean, you know. Th- you see it with like the MLA and the Modern Language Association too, and a lot of these other yeah. associations. I mean, they're, even, it's, they're, so it's, it's their right to do it. It's just a yeah. question of whether it corrupts science. Yeah, yeah. Whether it's a good idea, you know, uh-huh. and I guess short term maybe it is, you know, but long term is a bit more questionable. But um, yeah, I mean, of course, it, the APA's had long issues with policy statements uh, like on, on the violence in video games that, that I did that is, is, you know, has not been accurate for quite some time. Um, but in the sense of sort of like everything politicians do, suddenly the APA has to talk about it. Yeah, that 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 feels a little the frequency seems to have gone up, you know, and I think mm-hmm. part of it for the APA um, is in. 2015, they kind of got, I'm going to tell a short version of the story, but eventually they got caught, if you will, changing their ethics laws to allow psychologists to be involved in the torture of, of uh, detainees in Guantanamo Bay. So uh, that was a, a massive humiliation for the APA. They basically sort of collaborated with the Bush administration um, and eventually the Obama administration to sort of allow some of the stuff to happen. Um, and, you know, I mean, of course, for an, an organization that's supposed to be ethical, you know, and, and, and sets the ethical guidelines for our field to, to then be sort of caught out doing some of this stuff was, 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 was pretty bad. I mean, it was, so I, I think as a consequence, you know, we also had this idea that comes out of Freudian psychoanalysis reaction formation, which is when you start doing the exact opposite thing of what you're naughty. You know, so in other words, uh-huh. you cheat, on your, cheat on your wife, you come home and you bring her a bunch of flowers and a new Volkswagen or Volkswagen, a terrible. <laughs> I don't think that's going to help. I don't think that's going to help. Yeah. <laughs> that's, yeah. <laughs> that was like the Volkswagen's the, uh, the poor man's BMW. It was absolutely incorrect. BMW. <laughs> yeah. So um, you're, you only feel a little guilty if it's a Volkswagen. Um, but um yeah. So, yeah. So I think it, some reason, I think to some degree, I think the APA is trying to show how just, you know, with a capital J, uh, the organization is, even though they really haven't changed much, you know, that the, sort of the internal workings, my impression of the internal workings of the APA is that they're still a very bureaucratic, you know, fiefdom uh, that is still basically a marketing firm for, for, you know, and runs like a marketing firm for, uh, psychology, you know, uh, and even that might be a little generous. Um, but is there any recognition that, uh, that there is a danger in the lack of diversity that exists, at least ideological diversity that exists within the field or within all fields? I mean, we have this general concern in America and the world right now for science um, all the science and all the studies seem to indicate that a lack of ideological diversity produces extremes uh, on any end of the spectrum, depending on where the echo chamber exists. But there seems to be very little interest in doing anything about it. Uh, and science would suffer as a result. I, I fully agree. No, I, and I think, you know, of course, working in academia, um, particularly the last four or five years have been eye-opening uh, to some extent, you know, so I, 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 before my current institution, I worked at a state school in, in Texas on the border of Mexico. In fact, I was in Laredo, Texas. Um, and so I was kind of familiar with some of the politics around, you know, it was Republican administration in Texas, you know, the, uh, the state legislature was, was highly Republican and pretty hostile to, uh, to academia. And then, at, and at that point, if, you know, yeah, we all were liberals. <laughs> it was, you know, there were few conservatives, but they were a sprinkling among a field of liberals. But for the most part, it felt, you know, like uh, I, I think that you know, it felt like the conservative 
legislature was exaggerating the degree to which we were indoctrinating kids. That was always kind of like the language is that we were indoctrinating kids. Um, now, I mean, 20, that was probably like, you know, 2005 through 2013 that I was working there. Now, I, I kind of agree um, that a lot, at least what's happening to some degree, I'm not saying that the conservatives aren't exaggerating it at all, but now I would have a difficult time disagreeing with the idea that at least some indoctrination is occurring at universities uh, and that, you know, some students are being pressured into taking, you know, positions that they may not think are true or they're not being presented with all the evidence both for and against a particular viewpoint um, and, and, and such. So, and yeah, I would say to, to raise that as an issue invites itself um, a fair amount of, of pushback and that's okay. I, you know, pushback is okay. Um, but there is this kind of fear, particularly in the last year that, you know, that could result in a job loss or, or, you know, some other official sanctions or something of that sort for speaking, you know, on the record uh, or getting caught speaking off the record, um, uh, about, you know, some of these issues. So I think there is a, a palpable fear, um, in academia, not to say K through 12 also possibly about, you know, deviating from this orthodox, so from, from an orthodox position, or even speaking about the idea of diversity in education. Most people don't care uh, about it. And I, and I think there even have been these surveys that have come out that have suggested that, you know, particularly younger scholars are much more okay actively discriminating against uh, a job applicant who was, for instance, more conservative. Um, and, uh, that's, you know, that's not good. <laughs> no, <laughs> no. I mean, you you try and create these uh, guardrails within institutions when you notice phenomena like that, right? In order to check them. Uh, you have this in grading procedures. You do blind grading. You don't know whose paper you're grading, for example. Um, you, you would think you would... After a while, after you see all the research, Cass Sunstein's and others' research on the importance of ideological diversity to avoid extremism, which is a worldwide problem and phenomenon at this point, that the scientists would come up with some sort of solution uh, and there would be some sort of care to implement it. But I'm, I, I only see it getting worse, right? Um, the, the, the question of indoctrination, which you bring up, is an interesting one and is obviously hot button right now because you see it with a lot of the critical race theory discussions um which are fraught and and have so much nuance that's being avoided <laughs> that it's hard to even scratch the surface of it uh but we're dealing with a situation right now um at university of oklahoma where they have these writing instructors who are training faculty these are mandatory trainings you don't have to attend this particular training but this is one of nine trainings and if you're a graduate student, you have to attend two of them. If you're uh, adjunct faculty, you have to attend one. And they were essentially teaching faculty members how to uh, guide their students towards the right perspective. Um, like they, there's like this one quote from this instructor who says, you know, this is how you respond to a student who might like be entertaining the idea of listening to a problematic argument. And then they even go so far as to say, you know, if the student is still wanting to write about the pronoun debate, for example, um, or is expressing using any white supremacist sources or expressing any white supremacist ideas, which 
it's hard to know what they mean about that. But in some quarters, that could mean supporting the police. It could mean, you know, X, Y, or Z conservative position. Then you report them for a student code of conduct violation. Ouch. Oh, yeah. yeah. And that, that literally what she said, uh, one of the faculty members said, you know, no, I just try and have a conversation with them about it. And the other faculty member given the training said, uh, I'm not so kind. You know, essentially, I tell them they can't explore those topics, and if they continue to do it, then I report them for a student code of conduct violation. Wow. Uh, yeah, you should. <laughs> we put up we we put up the full uh, write up on it, so people can. We got a statement from the AUP at yeah. Oklahoma condemning us for it, and they say that cl- the classes that they're training these instructors for are meant to quote explore multiple sides of an issue or quote explore an issue from multiple sides, whether their initial position is progressive or conservative, which. You know, I, I, I like to be charitable, but that's gaslighting to the 10th degree. I mean, that's not what that training was. The, the, yeah. the training was to push people to a progressive mindset sure. um, mm-hmm. or and progressive topics and label anything that wasn't essentially white supremacy. And you kind of talk about that a little bit in your book is, as a tactic in today's polarized debates is uh, nobody's listening to each other because they'll, you know, on the, on the left, they'll call you a racist or a sexist or a white supremacist. You know, on the right, you have, you know, you're banning critical, you're calling everything critical race theory and banning it and, and manipulating Marx curricula. Yeah. yeah. Which, um, so yeah, the indoctrination debate is to a certain extent, a lot of this is happening in, in K through 12, right? That's where a lot of the concerns of in K through 12 education, unfortunately, for better or worse, and maybe necessarily isn't enterprise almost an indoctrination <laughs> i remember growing up uh you know and having to take um you know a constitution class and you know we were taught all about patriotism and but at least in the higher ed environment that's not what the purpose is Correct. i mean it's yeah. about the creation dissemination and preservation of knowledge all of which kind of indoctrination is the antithesis of yeah well, I mean, I guess, I guess if you're teaching like values, I mean, there is a sort of sense of like, you know, like mm-hmm. education has always been partially about teaching values as well as facts, you know, but it's kind of the sense of like, if you're kind of teaching like civics, if you will, like, like free speech is important or due process is important. Um, that's different if you're, if you're sort of like obfuscating actual facts, you know, so I think that there's like the classic book, like lies my teacher told me, right, you know, the sort of sense of like, sometimes teachers would, you know, would teach you something about like, I, the one that springs to mind is like Helen Keller, right. You know, who is, you know, this you know, icon of uh, pushing for, you know, uh, the rights for people with, with blindness and deafness, physical disabilities. Yeah, disabilities yeah. Thing, you know, and she also was like, like a raging socialist, you know, and, and usually people leave out the raging socialist part and just point, you know, some people say communist. I don't know if it's fair to call her a communist or not. I'm not super familiar with her biography, but this is know. a whole nother discussion. Can we separate, <laughs> you know, the, the, the different components of an individual? I mean, Henry Ford yeah. was a raging anti-Semite, you know? yeah. <laughs> so, but he also created the, you know, in, in a capital R, not, not like by the modern definition, like just out out there, you know, segregationist, you know, so, you know, but on the other hand, he's usually ranked as a pretty, you know, a successful high ranking, you know, president. Um, but there's, I mean, there's no question in his case that he was, you know, a, an avowed racist, you know, uh, and such. And again, so we should, and also should a know. subject in your book, right. You're talking about Wilson yeah. here. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. He's a, he's a, he's an interesting, interesting, uh, uh, fellow. He hit on a really interesting point in history. Um, and he's, he is this sort of interesting, like counterfactual, like what if he didn't have 
you know, high blood pressure, would he have had those strokes and, you know, and would the world look different if only he had maintained his functioning um, in the last years of his presidency? Um, but, you know, I think we can be honest with, with I mean, that's, I think that's the trick is, you know, the, to argue, you know, here's kind of what happened and history's messy and, and crappy things happen. And here's kind of like the larger context of, of why things happen. Um, but I think what we have with history, particularly in K through 12 and in, and university as again, these competing worldviews is, and, and, you know, the conservatives want to tell the utopian story of American history. Whereas for some reason, the left have, have just like completely jumped off into this dystopian version of American history without any redemption. It's kind of like the Howard Zim, you know, school of, of history. That was an issue. I don't know if you ever read Howard Zim's. The people's uh, history of yeah, the United States. Was, yeah. I haven't read the whole, the whole thing. No. There was a clear decision and the Ameri United States chose exactly the wrong decision at every turn. It was like, a, you know, I don't know, 400 pages of that. Um, so, uh, yeah. So, I mean, I think there is this kind of fight where both sides, I mean, I'm, I'm a both sides of us, you know, are kind of uh, trying to obfuscate pieces of, of fact or information that are not, um, supportive of their worldview and they want to kind of enforce it. You know, they kind of want their version to be the one that gets taught to kids. Yeah. And, but there is, a, there is a environment and this is kind of the enlightenment environment that I'm in favor of. You talk about values in higher education, the, the values that we advocate it for at fire are, are, you know, are very much enlightenment values. You could have, and Jonathan Haidt talks about this. You could have an environment that, you could have a social justice university, as Height puts it, if you want. You just got to be open and honest about it. Um, we're kind of advocates for the Enlightenment model, which is the you know discovery, creation, and preservation of knowledge. And in any environment like that, there are certain values which do a better job of pursuing that mission than other values. You know, thought reform, indoctrination, censorship aren't great knowledge generating values um in the same way the other ones are but well and you can see i mean the, the interesting thing for me over the last again you know decade or so and i think it started on the right more in fairness and i think the left have sort of followed along with that is is even debates about these values and you know because you can see these these arguments about like take free speech which i think i would agree with you is sort of a fundamental value that is best for everybody um, and you'll see both on the left and the right arguments say that's not true. And that, in fact, we need to restrict people's access to speech and it's for their own good. You know, it always comes into the sense of it's not for the powerful. We're trying to protect the children, you know, or the disadvantaged or, or whatever else, or, or even due process, you know, that we, you know, uh, you talk about that a little bit in your book too. Yeah. <laughs> the sense of like, well, I mean, again, you see it on, on both sides, uh, you know, there's, there's a sense of, well, if someone didn't commit the crime, why, why were they arrested? Um, that's that's not evidence. <laughs> you know, that's not that's not how you decide if someone's guilty of a crime. But that's a, that's the psychology that you find throughout human history, right? As a rush to judgment, you find um, you, you find that the the people when they're so certain that someone is guilty, they don't want to put in the processes to ensure the just outcome. You, if you go into the Department of Justice today and you know everyone has differing opinions about the department of justice but above their library and i'll never forget it they have this beautiful mural of a judge with the book of laws holding out his hand as a mob and skeletons start racing up the courthouse steps and there's this man who's crawling up the steps clearly who was being chased by the mob um, again this gets back to the 
and the first quote that I put out there is we, we codify these bureaucratic processes to fight against our psychological instincts and our psychological instincts are not friendly to free speech. They're not friendly to deep due process. They're not friendly to really the rights of any man or woman. Right. Um, and, and that's why I think the last 300 years of human history is so, spe- so special because it's been able to recognize through, you know, enlightenment values and an enlightenment inquisitiveness that, um, you know, the, these life is better if you put checks on human instinct, but this might be the forever fight that'll never be won because you're fighting against human nature. And you talk about tribalism in your book and the innate instinct we have to separate into our tribes. You talk about, um, one of the, one of the great studies, and maybe if you could wax poetic on this, um, is that one about the school, not the school children, the camping children, the children at the camps, the robber's cave, I think. Yeah. Uh, yeah, basically with, with, with that, the, the, again, sort of short version of it, um, is that they took some kids and I think, don't remember exactly how old they were, but they were, you know, sort of, uh, 10, 11, somewhere in that range. Uh, I believe they were all boys and just randomly assigned them into two separate camps. And they had like, I think they were like the Eagles and I forget what the other one was called, the coyotes or something like that. They basically yeah. gave them animal names. And they had no contact with each other whatsoever, you know, at least initially. They just were in two separate camps for a while. And then they started to bring them into competitive contact with each other. So remember, they were randomly assigned. They knew that they were randomly assigned as far as that can be internalized into a boy's head, at least, you know. Uh, But they knew that they weren't like picked because they were smarter or or braver or stronger or anything of that sort. Uh, But then they started to bring these two camps into contact with each other competitively. You know, so in other words, they would compete a tug of war and whoever, whichever side won would get some sort of, you know, small prize or something of that sort. And very quickly you end up with people start to, or the boys uh, start to think like, well, the coyotes, they're all idiots. You know, they're all wussies. You know, they're all, you know, they're all bad. They're all evil. You know, so you see how prejudice develops as a context of this sort of intergroup conflict. And then what they do at the very end of it is they eventually then bring the two groups together cooperatively. And I think it was something like there was a truck that was broken down and the truck had food that they both needed for their camps. And so they had to work together to effectively like push the truck, you know, to get it to where they could actually benefit from the food. I may be mangling some of the details, but that was kind of what happened. And, and at that point, once you see that the two camps work cooperatively with each other, then that prejudice kind of you know, diminished, you know, went, went away. They had more positive views of the boys on the other side. They're kind of like, Oh, you guys aren't so bad after all. Um, is that know. a solution then to our polarization is when you actually talk about this, you talk about how like external threats that can have a way of pulling people together. You look at nine 11 and all the American flags that were hung around, but you'd think that COVID-19 might've been that moment, but it's only supercharged the tribal instincts and the, and the polarization. Yeah, it, it suggests that there are certainly some complexities. I mean, if you kind of think of like diversity training, I mean, it, the evidence we have on diversity training, which is kind of complicated, but it basically suggests that the stuff that works best tends to be the stuff that brings people together cooperatively, mm-hmm. and, you know, develops, you know, the idea of like separating people into like different affinity groups and then, you know, using the more divisive language that that, that some, you know, the, the, the white fragility kind of programs of Robin D'Angelo don't seem to work. If, if anything, they seem to actually backfire which we would expect, you know, given these kind of results in the robber's cave. 
uh, experiment. But uh, yeah, but it does suggest that, you know, uh, there, there are some obvious nuances and stuff you know, around things like, yeah, COVID-19 didn't work. <laughs> and yeah, I, I remember no. 9-11, it was the opposite because 9-11, it was, if anything, you know, to use the buzzword problematic, it was problematic that there was so much groupthink you know, uh, around, because that led to some serious errors, you know, that there was no questioning of the government or very little, you know, very few people were, there was a sort of sense of like, you, you know, you can't, you're not patriotic if you're not, you know, if you question the war in Iraq, you're somehow not supporting the troops. So there was a lot of like groupthink and, and, and pressure to conform around that. Um, you know, but, but it did, it did create a result in this, you know, uh, cohesive national identity, and if you look at things like race relations, you know, back in the 2000s, they were pretty good um, that both black and white Americans, you know, the majority of black and white Americans, 60, 70 percent, 75 percent, were largely satisfied with how race relations were progressing um, at that at, at that time. Um, and, you know, uh, and events like World War Two are kind of similar to that. You can see people now coalesce, you know, in some, you know, all the debate kind of goes away, even World War One to a somewhat lesser extent. Um, but yeah, but maybe it needs to be other humans. I don't know. I mean, I, you know, I'm just speculating at this point, we don't have good data on this, but maybe the missing element is that we didn't have a bad guy with COVID-19, you know, it's yeah. just nobody's at fault. Uh, well, if you're on the right, you have Fauci. If you're on the left, you have Trump. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. And a lot of stuff really did become, you know, I mean, 2020 was really for me, this sort of eye opening experience and just how irrational people really are. And I mean, smart people, people with PhDs, that's my, that's the kind of people that I'm, you know, are in my social circle for better or for worse. You can say I have a limited social circle. That's probably true. Um, but they're smart people. At least they have, you know, doctor, a lot of them have doctorates or most of them are at least college educated, uh, you know, for sure. Um, and their responses were irrational, completely irrational. Um, you know, well, if you say, you know, that's another interesting topic, um, in social psychology is like how we've sorted ourselves. You don't have as much intermingling between different age groups as you used to. Um, we're sorting ourselves along, um, uh, edu- education levels, uh, and various other, and Charles Murray wrote a book coming, you know, you can't cite Charles Murray anymore, but he wrote coming apart, um, you know, about the, the various, so, so that, that can probably develop the same sort of extremism that we've been talking about for this conversation as well. Just how, where we choose to live and who we choose to hang out with. Yeah. Um, it's, it's very complicated. I mean, obviously there's, you know, going along with that, there's a lot of, you know, breakdown of just civic organizations, the idea that, you know, people from who are Republicans and Democrats would all get together at the bowling alley or something like that. And, you know, yeah. The Robert Putnam out. idea. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> it's, all, it's all gone. That's all gone. Um, for the most part, uh, you know, it's, uh, it's sort of, it's sort of interesting. I, I live in a neighborhood that's actually probably, you know, unusually diverse in, in almost every way you can think of it, both racially, uh, and politically diverse. Um, and so we actually managed, so we have a Facebook page. <laughs> but, oh, we got uh, one in our community too. Yeah. <laughs> but actually we, uh, I think, you know, our, our neighborhood kind of handled it because we had people that had like the Trump signs up. And we had people that had the Biden signs up and this kind of stuff. And we actually managed to navigate that for the most part. I think we kind of came up with the rules that you can have the signs up and, but you can't put anything any more divisive. So obviously there's some censorship for like the better, you know, uh, social good, you know, sort of element, but it's something we all kind of agreed on. 
is, you know, so it's sort of like you can have a Trump sign, you can have a Biden sign, but you can't have either like a Black Lives Matter sign or like the blue line, you know, yeah. sort of, you know, so kind of like that's the stuff that will piss people off. And, you know, and uh, are you in a homeowners association or is it like a voluntary? Yeah, it's, yeah. it's an HOA. But this stuff was mostly voluntary. I think there probably are some HOA rules about what you compose as well. Yeah, I used um, to be the that, president of a homeowners, my old one. Yeah, the worst job I've ever had. But <laughs> um, <laughs> it is. Yeah, I can imagine. You, you can you can never make it. You can never make anyone happy. But we had it written into our bylaws, which makes enforcement easier, easier because anytime you can avoid any sort of an arbitrary uh, allegation of arbitrary enforcement, th- the better. But I, I, we also, for the broader community that I lived in, um, had a Facebook group as well. And coming, I, I moved recently. I moved earlier this year. That community had like a thousand person Facebook group. And the one I'm in now is like a hundred person. And it's very interesting to see how people behave on social media as the size of the group expands and you expand it even further and even just look at like Twitter as a whole, people behave, at least in my experience, much more poorly, the larger the group is rather than the smaller the group is, uh, which I guess might be predictable um, in, in a certain sense, but you'd think that what you say is on display for a larger group of people, you might behave yourself better, but that's not what I found. Um, I agree. I agree. So there's been this real kind of, um, you know, cause you know, going back 10, 15 years ago when, when social media was really just kind of starting and we were kind of talking about it, there was a sort of sense of the anonymity being to the advantage of the asshole. Right. You know, so essentially like people who were anonymous would behave badly. Um, you know, and so anonymity was protecting people from, consequences mm-hmm. now a lot of that is flipped if you look at i mean that, that still happens you know don't get me wrong but if you look at a lot of bad behavior it's by non-anonymous people you know so people are being assholes still with blue checks next to their name you know and stuff like that so what, what's interesting about that is now there seems to be social incentives social credibility that's built around being behaving badly as long as that is sort of appealing to, again, your tribe or your, your tribalism. So if you say something, you know, ridiculously toxic, but as long as it's like, you know, uh, so you can say stuff that's sexist, for instance, as long as you direct it at JK Rowling or Gina Carano or things like that, if you're on the left, you can kind of get away with it, you know? Yeah. You, you uh, talked about the yeah. Sarah Jong case, uh, the New York yeah. Times case. Yeah. So there's kind of like these different standards that apply, you know, to some of this. And again, if you're on the right, you can say something that's, I don't know, horrible. Um, you know, as long as you direct it at, uh, was it like Liz Cheney, I guess now you can say whatever you want about her. She's kind of fallen out of favor on the right, even though she's Republican. But yeah, you know, so as long as the target is, is the right target, you know, it's kind of like the, the, you know, the cliche of, you know, punch a Nazi, right. You know, mm-hmm. that assault is bad unless it's like a bad person, then you can assault them. Then it's okay. Um, do you, what do you make of social media in general? I talked with, you know, your co-author on moral combat, uh, and he kind of waved away the concerns that social, that uh, my boss, Greg Lukianoff put in coddling along with Jonathan Haidt about, you know, how, how social media might be pay, might be making, uh, young people miserable, uh, isn't good for the national discourse. And it kind of, it's kind of in line with the thinking that, you all have on video games that they're 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 not having that sort of effect on the culture's psyche and the way that a lot of people say they are. Do you, do you, do you continue that line of thinking into social media, or do you think social media is is more or less detrimental? Yeah, I mean, I, 
I think it depends on. I think there are some areas where I probably would agree with with Jonathan Haidt and 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 Greg Lukianov. Uh, I'm always yeah yeah Lukianov. Yeah yeah. Um, and there are probably some areas where I would agree and some areas where I would disagree. And, and the, the main area where I would disagree with them, I think, is um, and I say this very respectfully. I, I, oh, I, of course, this is what we're I, here yeah. for. Yeah, um, <laughs> disagreement. <laughs> <laughs> but but I think like you know, there's a lot of this idea of that like suicides among teenagers are sort of tied to, to social media. And, and I think at this point, we just don't see that evidence that that that, that can be supported, um, you know, by the science. First off, the, the rise in suicides among teenagers is not the most dramatic rise that we've seen in the United States. That's among middle-aged adults, uh, actually. But you have seen a rise in, in mm-hmm. uh, it among teenagers as well, right? Among almost all age groups, we've seen a rise in suicide in the last few years. Um, other than elderly people is the only group where we have not seen a, a rise in suicide. But the, the largest Raw numbers and the largest increase was actually seen from middle-aged adults, um, not not the teenagers. So there seems to be something, in my opinion, wider that is happening in society uh, that would explain uh, the suicide rise. Um, we also don't really see it cross nationally. Um, you know, other countries have uh, you know still are high tech adopting, but don't have the same trends in the suicide that we're having in the United States, which is kind of difficult to explain. That's a, that's yeah, that's interesting. Yeah. The most compelling argument that they have for their coddling thesis is that the sort of bad behavior that social media encourages, the sort of like reputational catfighting that you get is more hits women harder than men. And you see a, a greater rise in suicides among women than men or attempted suicides. I think men actually effectuate more of them. Yes, they do. do. Yeah, um, much higher actual suicides. But that. if if your thesis is that social media is a contributor to this, social media, just the way women relate to each other, it would you would say it would seem to have a greater impact on them than it would on men. Right. Yeah. But well, th- that that doesn't mean that there's there's a de- definite yeah. causal relationship. It just. Yeah. Well, I think I think what we're seeing is that, and probably the reason that that argument came up. Um, is that with teenagers, at least, we are seeing uh, that there has been more of a percentage increase in suicides among teenage girls than boys. Now, there's also probably a certain amount of what we call like a regression to the mean effect and that the overall numbers of of suicides were lower anyway. They had more reason, more direction to go in um, than for boys. Um, But that's probably why. I mean, it feels like a little bit of an ad hoc fit, you know, to some extent. If it had been the opposite, like if boys' suicide rates were increasing faster than girls, there's probably a good reason we could have come up with, well, you know, boys actually behave more aggressively on social media and therefore, you know, are on the receiving end of more of that sort of bullying. Or we could, you know, it's, you can always come up with a reason why the data are inconsistent, but somehow still consistent with our, yeah. our theory. The thing that, that I would like to, you know, as I, I try to get um, Jonathan on, on, the, on the record with this one is saying, would you agree if we're using suicide rates going up now to support the idea that social media is responsible for that, would you therefore agree that if social media rates remained high in the future, but suicide rates declined, that this would also be evidence against your theory? Um, and if if they were to say yes, <laughs> then I would give them a pass, I think. But, but what we tend to find is that, um, you know, I'm not trying to be like super critical or anything here, but we saw some of the same stuff with video games that when the data are going in the right direction, people tend to look at that data. And then once the direct, once the data tends to diverge, then the data don't matter anymore. 
Um, so that's what I would like to avoid more than, more than anything is that, is that sort of, uh, you know, thing. so if we're trying to address suicide amongst teenagers or any other age group, it's, it's helpful to determine the causal relationship or relationships, right? So in your mind, what does the science say is contributing to it now? Or do you think it's multiple things? It's probably multiple things. Yeah. I mean, I, I don't think you'd find too many people that would say like one thing is, ca- is causing suicide. And I'm, I'm pretty sure that's not. No, that's not, not their No, that's not I, their Yeah. Argument. Yeah. So I don't think anybody's making that particular argument. Um, the question is, is, is this thing one of the things uh, that is leading to suicide? So we know that obviously like family environment, being around people who have committed suicide or try to commit suicide, things like that. Um, certain types of mental illnesses like depression, of course, and also psychosis, you know, can increase suicide risk. Um, things like, you know, um, shame and humiliation um, are uh, a factor. Bullying uh, is certainly a factor for teenagers. And I think that's what it really comes down to for them is the fact that you used to, if you were getting bullied at school, when you went home, you at least had a reprieve. Now you have a social media environment that can bring the bullying home with you. Um, so you get no reprieve, you maybe get a rise in mental illness and self-harm and suicide as a result. I don't know, you know, this is. Yeah, no, I think that's, I mean, I think that's a fair argument. You know, the question becomes, is, is it empirically supported? You know, yeah, so one of, the, of course. one of the good things that, you know, the good news is that bullying in general has been decreasing uh, over the last, at least the last decade or so, all forms of bullying, whether it's in person or, or, or online, kids in general reporting being bullied less uh, than they were, um, in the early 2000s or late 1990s. So there's kind of been a positive trend in overall exposure to bullying, even with the addition of cyberbullying on top of your regular, uh, you know, garden variety bullying. So the trend lines in bullying, uh, again, seem to be going in the opposite direction um, than the, the suicide thing. So, but, but I think what we need to do is we're kind of, or, or at least my concern is that we're kind of looking at the elephant, right? And we're all just kind of hanging onto the trunk and trying to describe what that thing is. Uh-huh. And that we need to look at the trends in, in teen suicide in combination with the te- trends in middle-aged adult suicide and everybody else's you know, uh-huh. suicide. Because one of the things that we do know is one of the big risk factors for suicide, if you are a teenager, is if a parent commits suicide. You know, so if you have middle-aged adults who are stressed, and I'm now, I'm about like in two weeks to hit 50. So I, I sort of sympathize with the plight. Well, happy birthday. Well, yeah, thank you. <laughs> yeah, thank you. I appreciate it. Um, but I mean, I get it. It's a, it is in many ways a stressful period of time. Don't get me wrong. I'm, I'm a pretty happy dude. You know, things are going okay for me for the most part. So I don't want everybody like, oh, Dr. Ferguson saying he's going to, you know, no, I, you know, but it, but it is a weird time of life that there is a lot of pressure, a lot of stress. And, and so it's not surprising that we would see middle-aged adults, I think, having more, more issues, particularly, you know, if you are the cushy academic who's doing, a, you know, who has summers off, it's different than if you're the coal miner who just lost his job, right? Yeah. And it has to support a family, um, you know, and stuff. So, I think what we need to look at are how the sort of larger family dynamic is affecting teenagers, because I don't think we can separate teenagers off from these middle-aged adults and say, well, something is happening to teenagers, which may be a social media and middle-aged adults are also not doing well, even though they're less tech adopting, you know, and actually doing worse. Um, but maybe something different is going on there. I mean, I think there's probably some interaction between those two cohorts of, of individuals, given that one is the parent of the other. Uh, and that would be more interesting to look at. I mean, you know, exactly what that thing is or what those things, plural, 
um, may be, you know, I, I, I'm not so sure uh, necessarily, other than if you just look around in American society, nobody's happy. Um, you know, at least it seems that way, you know, sometimes. So, I mean, I think there's something larger. If going you look on. at social media, it seems that way. Unless you look at Instagram, then everything's great. <laughs> it's all cat videos. Yeah. yeah. Um, and people dancing, you know, and we're but, hanging no, out at the beach with I, their, yeah. <laughs> what I did want to say is I don't entirely disagree with, with Greg, um, and, and Jonathan though, on the other hand, that, that I do think there are some risks that come along with social media. I just don't see the evidence for that particular outcome. Uh, as being an issue. What what I do pick up on a little bit, I think there is some empirical evidence for, is the sort of feeding into polarization that we can get with social media. Now, I don't think that the evidence suggests for me that if you took you and me at a certain level of polarization and put us on social media, that we would have a massive increase in how polarized we felt. But what social media does seem to do is amplify people's access to extreme material, you know, and basically the people who are more polarized get amplified in terms of the power of their voices. Um, so my impression at least, and I'm willing to be challenged on this. I'm not like married to this. I won't say this is the first theory of everything. Um, but um, my impression is that what's happening is not so much that the average person is becoming more polarized. That might be happening to some degree, but I don't think that's the biggest issue. I, I think we're giving more po power to the most polarized people. Well, I think there's probably some studies that have been done to determine social media use and, you know, level of extreme views or even, you know, if I sit on last year when the um, George Floyd protests were happening, I was sitting on Twitter. I'll never forget it because I was, it was happened to have doom a bachelor party yeah. at the set. Yeah. And I was doom scrolling and my blood pressure was rising. Right. Yeah, yeah, you yeah. know, as I was seeing all these things happening about these uh, throughout the country and it's hard to argue that social media wasn't having some sort of psychological, even physiological yeah, effect I, on I me. I fully agree. Yeah. And, and you, you even talk about this a little bit, that just the incentives of social media and the easy access of it. You talk about this in your book, encourage a lot of id, right? Cause it used to be, if you got angry at something you read, you had to sit down, take out your pen, take out your paper, write up your letter to the editor and, pay the 50 cents for the stamp and put it in the mailbox. Now you 240 characters, you can bang out in 20 seconds and uh, then pat yourself on the back and go on with your day. You know, it's, it's just the access to be able to express yourself is, is easier. And so you see a lot. And uh, this is one of the most disappointing things about social media. And this is getting a little bit off topic to me is there's a lot of people who I really respected in a pre-social media age who, as soon as their id was unleashed on Twitter, I had much less respect for them. Like, uh, at fear of him coming after me, although we're an hour into this, I doubt I'll listen to it. Nassim Taleb. I mean, he wrote The Black Swan and he wrote Fooled by Rand. All these great books. Amazing, amazing insights. But he's insufferable to, look, to watch on Twitter. All he does is pick fights with people and tell everyone else they're dumb. Um, but that's a whole separate argument. I wanted to ask you on the suicide point. Uh, there are communities where not communities to help people who are seeking to come out of their suicidal depression, but communities that actually help people commit suicide on the internet. Um, and there was that famous case a couple of years ago where uh, I think it was a girlfriend of a guy. The guy was having suicidal thoughts and tendencies, unfortunately. 
And the girlfriend was not helping and was actually encouraging him to commit suicide. And eventually he did. I think she was tried and found guilty. Um, in America, we have wide latitude for people to express themselves, even if we find that that expression is harmful at the margins. I mean, we allow the anarchist cookbook to be published, for God's sakes, right? Um, how influential are those sorts of communities in pushing people over that very unfortunate edge? How damaging is this sort of expression, these communities that prop up among uh, people who are considering self-harm? Yeah, that's a, that's a great question. And of, and of course, the answer is sort of complicated, but um, I just can't give simple answers. But um, the, the area that I'm more familiar with actually is the sort of the pro-anorexia uh, websites, which is kind of a similar sort of uh, issue and, and, and debate. And so, you know, the concern there is, of course, that young people, particularly young women, will go on these websites where they're encouraged to develop, anorexia, you know, or maintain. You know, they, there are all these clues about how to hide it from your family and all kinds of other stuff, um, you know, challenges about how thin you should be and so on and so forth. And, you know, most of us will say, like, this, you know, this isn't great, you know. Um, the, the evidence we have, again, is that for the average young woman goes on the website and it doesn't affect her at all. You know, what does happen is possibly if you have a woman who already or young woman, teenager or whatever, who already has anorexia, um, then what can happen sometimes is that if the person feels bad about it, you know, uh, feels guilty about it, um, maybe guilty is not the right word, but, you know, it has some, you know, cognitive dissonance about it. Um, you know, uh, what, what is it? The um, I'm trying to think of a psychoanalytic word uh, for it. But, uh, you know, basically finding people who are of like mind can reduce inhibitions uh, to something. You know, sort of re reduces the stigma of that. Well, thing. everyone wants to be a part of a community, right? Right. But yeah. not all communities are good for the self. I mean, you right, can talk about right. cult leaders in your book. <laughs> right. Yeah. <laughs> <You know>? <laughs> yeah. <laughs> well, people have this thought. Identification. That's what I was trying to think of. So people yeah. have this idea of like, I'm having this thought. Is it bad? And then you go on, you find someone likable who has the exact same thought and that convince you, well, the thought isn't that bad, you know, I guess, you know, um, I mean, the most extreme version of this, of course, when we used to have like, what was it NAMBLA, right? Which is a North America, it was a pe pedophile organization, right? You mm. know, as people would worry, I think with legitimacy, like what if you have a pedophile who feels guilty, you know, as you probably kind of should, um, you know, and is having these thoughts that, you know, are, are upsetting and, and, and they say, well, I'm thinking of this, but I also think I'm, I'm worried I might hurt someone you know and yeah you know, somebody help me essentially yes yes and what you don't want is for someone to then say oh no 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 it's all good you know don't worry about it you know because then you may remove that stigma that you may remove that block that it's actually preventing them from doing something harmful um you know it, it's, it's not going to be like the average person goes onto this website and is going to say well you know i hadn't thought about suicide before uh, but now it makes a lot of sense, you know, uh, mm -hmm. you know, sort of thing. But someone who's already maybe teetering on that edge, um, you know, I can't definitively say that, you know, it might not be. The, but it's, it's not going to be like the technology it did. It's going to be connecting with another human being um, that, you know, uh, making that human connection and having that person give some sort of influence that is going to nudge them over the side, is going to argue against whatever barriers they were having uh, that were preventing them from engaging in that you know, harmful behavior. And that's, and that's what I think there are legitimate concerns um, around, um, you know, some of that stuff, you know, what percentage of suicide does that explain? Probably not very much, but you know, maybe a small amount. Um, so. Yeah. I mean, that, and that's, that, that's, I think those sorts of arguments I think are the biggest challenges and, and of course, encouraging someone to commit suicide. 
uh, as that case demonstrated, uh, and if the facts bear it out, is a crime. I mean, she was convicted. Um, but it's one of the challenges that free speech advocates have because you have people who are in distressed psychological states. They find these communities who encourage uh, self-harm or harmful behavior. Uh, they have the right, not only the free expression right, uh, but also the free association right to associate right around these shared ideas. And we often think that more speech is a, the counter to bad speech, but these are closed communities, right? There's no disconfirmation happening there. Um, so, it, and, and this is the sort of psychological hack you see throughout history is people are vulnerable psychologically and then people exploit it. This is what happened in Weimar, Germany. You talk about this in your book too, right? Uh, Hitler hacked a, hacked a vulnerability in German society and, and drove a big panzer tank right through it. So yeah. <laughs> um, the last question I want to ask you uh, is one that I've been flirting with since I was, took a statistics course in college. Uh, I was not a good, not, not a good math student, but I love statistics because of what it told me about society. And I'll never forget my professor, like the first day of class, he drew the normal curve on the whiteboard. Um, I might, I'll probably butchering the description of it, but it's the curve found throughout society, uh, in a bunch of natural phenomena, you know? So like it, it's low on the edges and then it comes up like a hump and then it comes back down. So it's, you could do it with like the size of the size of babies. Most babies are seven pounds. So they're up here at the top of the curve, but at the end of the curve, you'll get some 13 pound babies and you'll get some four pound babies. Right. Uh, but you see that all over the, you see it in the size of tree trunks, you see it in behavior, you see it all over the place. And when he told me this, I started to wonder, are the deviant behaviors that we see all over human history necessarily a part of you? Like, you can never root them out because there will always be that curve and you can only just shift the curve, but you can't eliminate it. There's always going to be deviance in society. There's always going to be the Mao Zedongs and the Hitlers. And there's always going to be, unfortunately, the people who uh, have schizophrenia or who have um, suicidal thoughts and ideations. And, and it, it created a lot more tolerance on my part, but it also creates a question about free will, which you discuss in your book is like, if these sorts of people and these sorts of behaviorals are found throughout the world and they have to exist almost, um, you know, what, what, what is there left for us to do about it? You know, but accept it. Yeah. Have you thought about that? Yeah, that's a great question and a really complicated one. And, and, and I'll try not to go on for like half an hour trying to answer it. Uh, but I think there are, you know, a few really interesting, you know, threats. It's important to point out there there are some exceptions, of course, to the bell curve. I mean, there's some things like even like violent crime, for instance, just doesn't work on a bell curve. That's all a lopsided, you know, uh, curve. Uh, sexual. Well, there is there, yeah, there is like what yeah. they call the Pareto principle. I don't know if that's a uh, example. The idea that like twenty percent of people are responsible for eighty percent of the effect, or uh, you know, yeah. Know. But maybe it's you could put that on a bell idea. curve too. Yeah, yeah. yeah. But um, yeah, I mean, so so part of it, yeah, is a sort of concept of like population dynamics. If you kind of think of like a typical trait and if we accept that most traits have some biological input to them, some genetic input to them, you are by nature going to get a range of those things. You know, that's just kind of, you know, no, we're not going to get like absolute uniformity. And, and largely speaking, you know, thinking in terms of genetics, you don't want it. You know, uh, if you look at critters, 
that have near uniformity in terms of their behavior. They don't do well uh, for the most part. Koala bears. Everybody loves koala bears, but all they eat is eucalyptus leaves, you know, so <laughs> they're, they're doomed, you know, <laughs> I mean, they're kind of, you know, I love yeah, them. If, if, if the eucalyptus leaves no longer <laughs> exist, they're uh, <laughs> so Darwin's our, coming for them. Yeah, basically, you know, so, so rigid critters, you know, uh, tend to do less well than, than critters that have this kind of like wide range of things. Now that does mean you end up sometimes with, you know, take a, take a trait like aggression, right. Which is really kind of the one that, you know, a lot of people are interested in, you know, the, the aggression works on a bell curve. Most of us are somewhat in the middle. You know, if you like come up to me and poke me in the eye, you know, I probably won't. I mean, I'm a little guy. I don't get any fights because I'll get my ass kicked. But, you know, I mean, you know what I mean? But it's, you know, I'm not going to just like shrug it off. and like, oh, well, it must have been an accident. You know, um, you know, but most of us wouldn't hopefully be the one to do the poking in the eye. Right. We wouldn't initiate mm-hmm. it. You know? So we're somewhere in the middle. And being somewhere in the middle of aggressiveness is, is probably the most adaptive place under most circumstances, which we currently live. You know, you don't want to yeah. be too passive. You just get rolled over and you don't want to be too aggressive because you're a criminal and you'll be thrown in jail. You know, so those are both non-adaptive, you know, sort of extremes on this, uh, you know, bell curve. But that could change. Right. You know, so what if the zombies attack? You know, all of the people on the on the from like, you know, 80 percent down of that curve are going to die. You know, and it's going to be as, you know, the Walking Dead TV series pretty well demonstrated. It's going to be the most aggressive people who are going to survive. So that's look. (laughs) I've never even thought about it that way. So (laughs) although it's completely obvious is that the the variations in behavior that you find on a bell curve throughout our environment um, throughout the world is an evolutionary necessity for species survival, essentially. It is. Yeah. You know, there's a lot of complexities built into this, but it usually is generally better to have more variation than less. You know, so if we end up creating this utopia where everybody, you know, which I in many ways morally think is a great idea where we all just get along and we're all peaceful and there's no violence between humans. It's all sounds wonderful until the aliens come down and take over. Right. You know what I mean? And then it's a terrible idea. Um, you know, sometimes we have to think ab- ab- about that. The, the other, the other aspect of it, sort of to address another point about the free will is, is the, you know, I, I'm something of a, I guess the, the word is a compatibilist that, that I, f- I think that some aspects of, of, of free will are compatible with determination and in other areas and that, you know, so the example I sometimes use is that it, it absolutely is true that our genetics and our environment in many ways shape our behavior or attitudes and, and so on and so forth. We're not, you know, complete you know, uh, gossamer angels, you know, making up decisions mm-hmm. willy nilly as we go through the world. So for instance, you know, I probably more than the average person even love donuts, you know, uh, this is absolutely true. And probably a lot of that comes from my genetics. In fact, I have a lot of like weird, like taste things and taste aversions and stuff around vegetables and fruits. So I'm have a terrible diet, um, that I really just can't control. Um, but, <laughs> uh, you know, but so being directed towards donuts as opposed to broccoli, is probably something that is biologically wired into me, right? You know, on the other hand, I still have the choice to eat that donut or not, you know? So when I make the decision and I make this decision fairly regularly, <laughs> you know, should I have a goodie or should I not? Um, I still have some degree of capacity to make a decision. You know, my biology motivates me towards one of those choices, um, but I still, that's the compatibilist argument, right? There is this determination that sort of directing me towards one outcome more than the other one, but I still have some capacity to make some decision between those two things, um, that we might describe as basically being free will. So if I make the decision to eat the donut, 
which I often do. Um, that is still my responsibility. I still have made that choice and, you know, should, you know, I shouldn't just blow it off and be like, well, genetically, you know, I had, I'm a, I'm an automaton and, 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 uh, you know, if I die early as a consequence, so be it. Uh, I never had any choice in the matter, you know, but there's probably a bell curve and or a normal curve for, uh, you know, self-control as well. Impulse control. Yeah. Yeah, Impulse control as well. So, you know, if you're at the, if you're at the far, if you know, you're two standard deviations away on the tail there, uh, your impulse control isn't going to be good, but someone, you know, based on what we know about bell curves needs to be on, on that, uh, at that standard deviation. But uh, of course, you know, bell curves can change over time and the standard deviation, you know, it could shift one direction or the other in the bell. So it's not like there, there's no control over what that looks like, I guess, but it's just, it's something I've always thought about. Um, we could talk about it for an hour. It's just, you need to have some sort of tolerance for the extremes because just the nature of the world is that the extremes are going to always exist and you can't really eradicate them. Um, but you can create systems. I moved my microphone away. We're not done. Uh, but we can create systems to, to, to kind of har- control them and incentive, create the right incentives and, and stuff like, and that's more of Cass Sunstein's work, you know, on nudge. And, yeah. And stuff yeah like I was going to say, yeah. And of course you had to be realistic about the actual impact. So I think like a lot of the, the promises of the nudge idea haven't really worked out as well as people had thought, but you know, um, we're less nudgeable than, than people had hoped <laughs> that <laughs> we are somewhat nudgeable. You know, it's not just, again, it's just a matter of having, you know, a certain degree of, of realistic expectations about how you could, you know, so the idea of like the brave new world is probably a utopian fantasy or dystopian fantasy, depending on how yeah. you, um, you know, but, um, but yeah, but the, I mean, nudge, the nudge thesis, I mean, cast Sunstein's nudge thesis, seems to be a good moderate perspective i hate to use the phrase social engineering but that's essentially what they're telling to do it's like but it's 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 benevolent in the sense that there's no compulsion it's like just like for example having you automatically enroll in a 401k and you need to check the box to unenroll in it if you don't want it you know rather than putting the burden on you to do the automatic enrollment when you start a new job uh, of course, you can get to much less, much less benign subjects. Yeah, I was going to say that. <laughs> an assumption of uh, benignness. I don't know if that's the right word. Yeah, I mean the the civil libertarians just uh, by their nature. Anytime you mention the phrase uh, social engineering, um, but that's what that's kind of what nudge is, right? Right, um, right. Yeah, get squeamish and rightfully so because social engineering has a horrid history in the world. But you could see it like stray from that a little bit. I mean, I think kind of going back to free speech issues a little bit, too, is and I don't know whatever came of it. But I know like in the UK, who were they were very big on the nudge concept for a while there. There was a movement. Uh, well, not a movement. It was actually a proposed, um, you know, uh, legislation, essentially, that uh, they were going to make it such that when you bought a new computer, that your computer had like a net nanny. Uh, it came with like a net filter on. Mm-hmm. Um, so that basically it would filter out any pornography was the main thing they were looking for. And that, you know, but you could turn it off, you know, you, you know, but that was the nudge, right. Is that it would sort of put nudge you in the direction of not viewing porn as opposed to viewing porn, you know? Um, but, um, but who, who gets to decide <laughs> that that's the, the direction we want to, you know, uh, I think, you know, the idea that porn is like, you know, is inherently harmful is a fairly controversial one. So who gets to decide? That this yeah. Is you talk about that a little bit in your yeah. book. You talk about <laughs> how, uh, there's an inverse correlation between, um, 
uh, sexual aggression, rape, sexual assault, and pornography viewing. You have a you have a graph. I had never seen that before. I thought that was fascinating. We could have gotten into the pornography debate, uh, yeah, uh, yeah, in this conversation, but now we're an hour and twenty minutes in, so I think we probably should wrap it up. Sounds but good. Yeah, this this has been a lot of fun. The book is How Madness Shaped History. This came out last year. Yes, came out right in the, at the beginning of the pandan- pandemic, which is the best time to release a book. No, it's yes, not, the worst, yes. worst possible time to release a book. I just uh, I, I was reading it, and you were writing during. You talked about how you're writing during the Donald Trump presidency, and for some yeah, reason, I yeah. thought this came out this year, and I was like, I'm reading it, and I was like, it must have came out came out last year. Well, I released a movie during a pandemic, uh, so independent movie. So you you can't do film festivals, you can't do <laughs> distributions. Hard theaters are closed. You can't bring any of your friends to munch on popcorn. So it's. Uh, uh, solidarity there, brother. It turns out you can't print books if nobody's working in the place that prints books. <laughs> so There's no paper. A while. Yeah. Well, I, I mean, the paper shortage is a real deal thing. I mean, yeah. the um, I mean, there's supply chain issues all over the place. But I remember when Greg was working on coddling, they couldn't keep up with the supply because they couldn't get paper to bind books. It's like, what? Um, but anyway, yeah, the book is How Man to Shape History. I encourage any history lovers, psychology lovers out there to check it out. Uh, available wherever fine books are sold. Uh, Professor Ferguson, this has been a lot of fun. We'll have to do it again sometime. Yeah, awesome. This was fun. Thanks. Appreciate you having me on. Thank you. This podcast is hosted and produced and recorded by me, Nico Perino, and edited by my colleague, Aaron Reese. You can learn more about the show at Twitter. We're on twitter.com slash free speech talk. And we're also on Facebook at facebook.com slash so to speak podcast. We take feedback. So if you got some, uh, email so to speak at the fire.org if you have any for Uh, Chris, I can send it along to him as well. And if you enjoyed this episode, please consider leaving us a review. Take them on Apple Podcasts, Google Play, Spotify, Stitcher, wherever you get the podcasts. They do, believe it or not, help us attract new listeners to the show because we go up in their rankings, which is fun. But until next time, thanks again for listening.